The following Dahmer discourse was given by Jeffrey Shugan Arnold at the Zen Center of New York City. Shugan Roshi is the head of the Mountains and Rivers Order and abbot of Zen Mountain Monastery. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our various programs, visit us online at zmm.org slash zcnyc. Thanks for listening. Well, good morning, everyone. It's very nice to be here. This morning I wanted to speak a little bit about the paramita of patience. One of the really essential aspects of Mahayana Buddhism is bodhicitta, raising the great aspiration, and to cultivate and engender a sense of urgency, recognizing that all things are impermanent, Life is impermanent and it's fleeting. When we're young, it seems to go on forever. But as we get older, we see how that is not so. It is unpredictable. Right? I often think of how many people today are waking up on this fine Sunday with a plan, with an idea of how this day is going to go and will not see the end of this day. That has always been true. And Buddhism faces that squarely, directly, because it's a reality. And the Buddha Dharma teaches that if we want to be at peace and be peaceful with others and be free within our lives, then we have to do all of that in the real world, in the world that actually is happening. Not the one we want, not the one that we think should be, but the one we have. And so this sense of urgency that's communicated when we chant the evening gatha at the end of each day of practice, let me respectfully remind you, life and death are of supreme importance. Time swiftly passes and opportunities are lost. We should strive to awaken. Take heed, don't squander this life. There's so many teachings, so many aspects of the practice and teachings that are bringing this to mind, helping us to remember, to remember, because we forget. Right? In the ongoing, sort of repetitive appearance of things, we forget today was like yesterday, tomorrow is going to be like today, until it's not. And so to keep bringing that forth, the other side of that is patience, because without patience, that urgency can become like a fast-burning flame that burns itself out. And so how do we hold that sense of urgency of imperative. My teacher used to speak of a spiritual imperative. An imperative is something that is not based on convenience, but is must, something that must be addressed. And how do we hold that calmly? How do we hold that and be at ease so that it's not putting us into conflict with ourselves and our life as we're working it out? <laughs> And so patience, that's one aspect of patience. It's really, I wanted to speak about how it's understood in Buddhism and in the Mahayana, because it has a very important role. Oftentimes, students will come in often during Sashin. We're just finishing a Sashin at the monastery, where I came down from this morning. So intensive practice, and, and sometimes students will come in and say, you know, I have no patience. And I'll say, okay, well, two things are going to happen. One, you're going to learn patience. 
or two, one day you're going to stop coming. <laughs> right? You're going to frustrate yourself out of this. And that doesn't have to happen. But we have to learn to be patient. And so Buddhism says that there are three kinds of patience that are important for the bodhisattva. The first is to deal with all the ways in which we are hurt. All the things that come to us from this world. Sometimes things that we have precipitated. Sometimes things that come unjustly. How do we hold those things? And so Buddhism teaches that those things are, those, all of those pains and injuries, those slings and arrows, can either just be a, a, a cause of anger and frustration and resentment and lashing out back against that world, or we can turn them into cultivating wisdom and compassion and patience. Another aspect is to be able to forbear, to, be, to bear what is difficult to hold while we're working things out. And then the third is how to face the teachings and actually the true nature of the realities that we live in the midst of without fear. In other words, how to face difficult truths like mortality, like aging, like sickness, things that we can't control. Buddhism acknowledges that there's so much in our lives that we're not in control of. There's a teaching that says we can, seeing that, we can try and cover all of those thorns and those sharp edges in the world with leather so they don't prick us. Or we can just put on shoes. The difference, of course, is that we can change ourselves, work with ourselves, so that as we engage in the world that is difficult in many, many regards, and that we are not in control of, that we can find our compassion and wisdom and liberation in that. And while we are trying to make the world a less thorny place. (laughs) It says, there is no greater negativity than angry hatred. With patience, no austerity or merit can compare. There's no austerity that can compare to patience. And that's very interesting to think of patience as an austerity. Therefore, strive persistently and by every means to practice patience and to quench the blazing conflagration of your angry hatred. Shantideva, in his great work of the Bodhisattva way of life, says, All the virtuous deeds and merits, such as giving and making offerings, all the good karma we've created in our life, that we've accumulated, can be turned, we can turn against them in one moment of anger. We can undo so much good that we have done in a moment of anger that is acted out on. For many, many years, we've done a lot of work in the, in the prisons with Buddhist practitioners. And I'm no longer as active in that as I used to be. I used to be very active and, and met so many people who, in one action, in one moment of angry hatred, committed an action that changed everything, and not just for them. Shantideva says, if I harbor painful thoughts of anger, I shall not experience mental peace, obviously. I shall find no joy or happiness, and I shall be unsettled and unable to sleep. There is no greater evil than anger, no virtue greater than patience. Therefore, I should strive in various ways to become familiar with the practice of patience. 
Patience isn't just something that happens. Okay, I'm going to be patient. Why don't we all just commit to it right now? From now on, we're all going to be patient, right? How's that going to go? So we know that our thoughts, our ideas, our will is not enough. Because what we're facing internally is so much deeper and stronger than just a willful idea, good though it may be. And so often patience is coupled with anger, whereas anger is seen as an as a, as a event that is there to help us cultivate patience, rather than just acting out against that anger and perpetuating its causes and strengthening it within us and causing more mental unrest and, and inner conflict. So anger, the, the things that cause us anger in our lives is, are really seen as propitious moments that are there, sometimes through our own actions, right? They're the fruits of our own efforts, but oftentimes they're coming from elsewhere. And sometimes we can be quite innocent in being the recipient of that. But what, however it's, it's come to us, the anger itself is something that lives within us, right? If somebody says something and you get angry, if we don't pay attention, if we don't examine our minds, it can seem that they, you did that to me. A moment ago, I was fine. You said something, now I'm angry. You did that to me. But what we need to see is that no one can actually put anger inside of us. They can be a catalyst. <laughs> but because the anger arises in me, ultimately, I am the one who gives rise to that anger, not the person. It's not in them. It's not in their words. That's not the anger in me. And that's really an essential part of Buddhist practice. And it can be a difficult thing to sort of, we have to kind of grow into that. Because there's so much that happens in the world that is wrong and unjustified. And you don't deserve that. And that so our anger can seem very justified. And anger usually feels justified, right? We rarely get angry for the wrong reason. (laughs) We usually feel like we're angry because we, you know, are justified in being angry, which is what gives it part of its power. But Buddhism says, even if that's so in the sense that something is happening which is unjust, the anger is in you. It's in me. That's what Buddhism is trying. That's the revolution that the Buddha undertook and passed on, is that the revolution is within us that we can transform that anger. And in that, the world becomes transformed. So to recognize that anger arises in Buddhist language dependently, it doesn't just happen. I have to be participating in it, even if I'm not aware of that that there has to be consciousness, there has to be my senses that is aware of the anger, the emotion, right? There has to be something that is bringing that into being. The Buddha said that the reason I get angry in this moment can only happen because the seeds of anger have already been planted. And so if you think of those seeds going into the fertile ground of your deepest consciousness, that every time you have experienced anger, those seeds are being watered and fertilized and nurtured. And so the more angry we, the more we react in anger, the more angry we will 
learn to be. We're learning how to be angry. We're developing, we're training, in a sense, ourselves to be angry. And that can happen unwittingly. And so turn that around. In the moments when anger does arise, but you meet it with wisdom, you meet it with mindfulness, you meet it with taking responsibility. Those words are on your lips. You want to shoot them back, but you, you, you're aware of that. So you hold yourself. You pause. Right? You think, how do I want to be living my life? Is this what I want to be creating? I know where that's going to go. And in that moment, even though you're still angry, and it may feel like things aren't very different, the fact that you're meeting in mindfulness and choosing a different path is beginning to shift it. And so in that way, when that happens again and again and again, that is getting stronger. The calming of that anger, so that when it arises, we become more aware, more skillful, more attentive, developing more capacities to meet that with ourselves. That's why it's one of the precepts. To not be angry, which is one of the moral teachings, means learn how to be angry in a way that doesn't lead to more anger, that doesn't make that fire grow hotter and burn the house down. When you burn down part of the house, right, because it got away from you, take responsibility. Take responsibility for it. That's also shifting the karma, because karma is not a fixed thing. An action that has a consequence is that consequence, but then it keeps going. And so we always have the capacity to affect the consequences of our actions if we stay engaged. And so to bear, to be able to experience and practice anger without harming others is patience, is having patience within that strong emotion, which means we have to hold the pain or the discomfort that we're experiencing in a way that is open, right? that has space in it, that has awareness. We see what's happening. We know what we're feeling. And even as though there may be something going on out here that needs to be addressed, that how we bring ourselves to it is going to become part of that mix. And so anger, in in my own Buddhism, because nothing is fixed, anger sometimes can be seen as a form of compassion. When it's not self-serving, when it's not trying to hurt, but it's actually trying to get somebody's attention, for instance, and they're not listening. And so sometimes to bring forth anger is a way to bring attention to something. Don Roshi used to often use the example of a parent who grabs their child who's walking out into traffic and scolds them, right? Not because, not to hurt the child, but to get their attention. I've told this story, but years ago when I was more of a troublemaker than I am now, (laughs) um, I'd gotten into some trouble. And I was in front of a judge, and my dad was standing next to me. And my parents always tried to be calm and rational with us. Like if I did something stupid, they would sit me down and say, why did you do something stupid? And I would say, could you just spank me and get it over with? You know? But no, they wanted me to like be rational. Um, I thought, I'm just a kid. You know? I did what everybody else does. 
So here was such a moment. I'd gotten into some trouble. I was in front of a judge, and I was young and stupid and thought I was in control. And I think I was, I don't remember exactly what I was saying, but I think I was kind of mouthing off to the judge a little, being sassy. And my dad whacked me on the back of the head, hard. And that was not something he did. And I didn't know it was coming. So it woke me up on the spot. And I realized, oh, something's going on. And I'm not paying attention. Like, I'm in trouble. And I think, and I think I've, I've got this. It was really helpful. I didn't particularly like it in the moment. <laughs> I was angry at him. I was humiliated. But it, it worked. And I became grateful. And so that's an example of compassionate anger, right? Because it's not self-serving. It wasn't for him that he was doing this. It was for me. So anger can be an instrument of compassion. But if we are the actor in that, we need to be very clear, right? And not be using that as a justification when we're not clear. And so in that way, it can be medicine when it's based in compassion and reverence for life. So how to hold that anger that we experience, oftentimes through injuries. We've all been hurt, some more than others. And it can be in relationships, it can be family, it can be friends and strangers, it can be institutionalized when we do Beyond Fear of Difference work to deal with the historical forms of oppression that we have inherited and that some of us we may carry on, perpetuate unknowingly. Those collaborative forms of oppression, of, of creating harm, of causing suffering. And then, and then because everybody's involved but differently, whether we're acting it out on another or on the receiving end, that can be very difficult, right? Because, again, it can seem very justified to be angry at the causes of unjust harm. And it is unjust. But again, Buddhism is bringing us our attention back to, to, okay, so I'm justified in my anger. I'm angry. That's what I'm living with. That's what I'm cultivating. Those are the seeds that I'm growing. Is that helping me? Is that serving me? Is there another way? Is there another way to see this clearly, to respond to it in a way that I don't, to sort of take on that illness. It's a practice, right? And it's not an easy practice, but it is a practice. And it's humbling. It's a humbling practice, right? Because we see, keep seeing ourselves falling off, falling off the ledge again and again. But those, for a practitioner, those are moments to see, to be mindful to see what's happening, to take responsibility. What can you do? And this is where, in practice, we have teachings, we have practices, precepts, paramitas, sangha, zazen, a wealth of practices to help us develop the capacity to endure through compassion and without sadness, any hardships that we experience for the sake of the Dharma. And this is an interesting aspect of patience. It's recognizing that in practicing the Dharma, 
you know, this isn't something that just happens, right? Before practice, if you don't do anything, what just happens is samsara. <laughs> That's what just happens. Attachments, they just keep happening. Greed, anger, and illusion, they just keep happening. Distractedness, that just keeps happening, right? If we don't apply any effort in a different direction, the same thing will keep happening. And so it's recognizing that if we want to practice, we actually have to apply effort. We have to do something, do things. And that some of those things are going to be difficult. So let's start with just sitting inside of your own skin and not turning away. How's that for an austerity? Right? But of your own accord, right? You're doing this. You're choosing. That's so important. No, you can't, nobody can make somebody else do zazen, right? And so the difficult things that we sometimes just f- gaining access to the Dharma, discovering it, finding a Sangha, being able to practice with a community, having a teacher, all of us have to have had to apply effort to do those things. Sometimes it's a lot of effort and it's sacrifice. We have to give things up. You're here now this morning. You could be somewhere else, right? That may be a small sacrifice, maybe not, depending on your situation. And so patience is enduring the challenges of those things. Sometimes they're, I mean, Buddhism has been around a long time. It's gone through lots of challenging times politically, economically, geographically, in terms of natural disasters, plagues, Time purges against Buddhism. I mean, a lot of our ancestors practiced under extreme duress. And some of them lost their lives just seeking the Dharma. Kind of puts things into perspective. (laughs) It is a long path for those of us who really want to take this up. And so that means letting go of expectations. And so patience means recognizing the things that we can do, that we're our, our responsibility and the things we're not in control of. And having patience with those things. Seeing how our expectations and ideas, our idealization of what we think practice may be, can get so underway and cause frustration and discouragement. And to be patient with what practice actually is. I thought of this in terms of as lay practitioners, the challenge of just integrating practice into your lives. Most people live lives that are fairly busy. That's sort of our thing, right? <laughs> to have very busy lives, overly busy lives. And so the, the hardship sometimes of just trying to actually do it all. And of course, then there are all of the ongoing multitude of inner challenges. The sadnesses, the sorrows, the pains, the frustrations, the angers, the boredom internally that you experience. In a way, as we develop mindfulness and begin turning in and really seeing and examining this inner world, in a way it gets harder, doesn't it? (laughs) You know, there were times when I thought, why can't I just like forget all about this and just pretend it's nothing's happening? And I would answer myself, because I can't. I can't do that. 
I don't want to do that, but I can't do that. It's too late. And so as we turn towards it, and as you're practicing and letting go of the defensiveness and your skin gets thinner, right? You thought practice was going to make your skin thicker, right? So you could not experience it. It actually gets thinner. You drop it off. That's the heart of compassion. And that means it sort of requires that we become much more adept at not clinging and get, getting mired, letting it pass through. And so we learn that within ourselves by facing all of our own inner worlds and the things that are difficult and painful and that we don't like. And really understand what is helpful and what is not helpful, how to be skillful. The Buddha said the two ways that we all know and bring into practice that are not skillful are one, to deny, this is not happening, to deny, to avoid, to suppress, to go numb, to go to sleep. We have a whole box of tools. Shut it down, right? And it kind of seems to work, right? But the thing is you can't compartmentalize. Everything shuts down. There's no life there. And we certainly can't be effective. The other side is to just get entangled, right? That doesn't work either. And so the Buddha said, if we want to practice the middle path, avoid, just avoid, just simply avoid those two extremes. <laughs> it's one of the most important guides you can carry with you. And now see all of the ways in which we avoid, in which we get mired, and develop your skills at, a, at relinquishing. And have patience with regards to that. Sometimes those challenges are interacting with others who are not practicing and don't understand why do you need to do this? Why, do you, why are you going away on Sunday morning? Right? Why are you going into that room and sitting when you could be here with me or with us or doing something else? Right? I remember when I was a kid, young, wanting to, and wanting to learn to play the flute, be a musician, and I would come home from school, and I thought, i got to go practice. I want to do this. i got to practice. But I'd hear kids outside playing. I thought, oh, oof. You know, I wanted to go play. But I thought, if I want to learn how to do this, I have to go into that room and practice. And that was so valuable. I've done a thousand bows to having done that, learned that skill when I grew up, wanting to play the flute. Because when I began practicing meditation, it's like, oh, kind of the same. But sometimes the, the, the way that interacts with others in our lives can cause challenges or friction. Sometimes that's one of the hardships that we encounter. How do you navigate that? How do you negotiate? And it's important to try to, to not let the practice become a wall between you and others. So I think of this in terms of commitment. If we want to do this, we have to be committed to it. I mean, that's part of the, we have to like make it happen. But if that becomes too tight, too rigid, then we become inflexible. And so flexibility is also important. But, but if we're always flexible, then we may never practice. And so how to hold those together. And how to work with time. I think of this often in terms of patience. right? Because we have such, I don't know, fill-in-the-blank relationships with time. 
The Bodhisattva, again, there's that sense of urgency. We don't know how long we have. This is important. Life matters, actually. Not just because we want to have fun or enjoy it, but because it gives us an opportunity to serve, to give, to do something meaningful, to impact the world in some way, in our own often small ways, but meaningful ways to influence other people's lives, the lives of other beings, the lives of our planet. So it matters. And so there's an urgency. But at the same time, time is part of the equation. right? You can't just sit down and undo all of your knots because you want to. You didn't build them that way. They took time. It's going to take time to untie them. And we often think that when we have realization, when we see into the nature of things and realize things are not as they appear, anger is not as it appears. Our attachments are not what we think they are. That's why we chanted this morning, to be attached to things is actually an illusion. There's an illusion of when I am attaching to something. Check that out. (laughs) But along the way, we're cultivating, we're developing, we're finding our way. And time is a part of that. And so when we go to the cushion, do our meditation, when we study, when we do the things that are forms of practice, in our sangha we we frame that as the eight gates. Every time you're doing that, you're drinking from the spring. You're quenching that thirst, whether it's a little sip or whether it's a gulp. And in that, that sip of water a pure water is moving through you and starting to assimilate you within your being. It's affecting your consciousness. That's the way it works. In the same way that when we're deluded, that when we attach to things, when we're angry and we act out on it, when we're greedy and we don't care, that's drinking from a different spring. And that's assimilating. We're training ourselves in those moments to be that person living that life. And when we really trust that, then we don't have to get so hung up on trying to see the results of our practice in every moment. Sometimes when I talk to students and encourage them to come to the temple, and they'll say, oh, but I can sit at home. You know, it's a little inconvenient to have to get on subway. And I say, but it's not the same. Great that you're sitting at home. That's important, but it's not the same as when you come and sit with each other. Something else happens. And it doesn't happen another way. I was just saying in a talk yesterday that during the pandemic, the height of the pandemic, when everything was going online, we would talk in the monastery, in the train office, and think, are people going to want to come back to the monastery, to the temple? It's going to be so easy just to say on Zoom. You have answered that question. right? To recognize that there is something that can't be replaced by this. And we can talk about it in lots of ways, you know. We feel kinship, we feel supported, it helps us sit, it, you know. But there are things that are, not in, that are not visible, that are not tangible, subtle ways in which it's affecting us. They're really important. And so time is a part of this. And then there's the patience of tolerance towards emptiness, is how it's framed. Fear, to face without fear the profound meaning of this dharma 
and the boundless qualities of the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. There are sutras that say if when you encounter the Dharma, you don't run away, then you may be ready. And what that's saying is that the, the implications of what the teachings are saying are so profound that actually you should be a little afraid. <laughs> Not because it's going to do something to you. Sometimes people are afraid, like, what's it going to do to me? <laughs> it's not a thing. right? And anything that is happening as you practice is your business. You're doing that. And it only happens with our permission. Right? Why, when you've been holding something for a long time, and then in one moment there's a great release? Why? Why now? Because it's time. It's ready. And you have prepared that piece of ground. And so to be able to face, turn towards the Dharma, that's why it says that we should hear the Dharma, encounter it, and then reflect on it. So that we're beginning to absorb the implications of what these teachings are actually saying. That's another way of assimilating. It's conceptual, but you're taking it in because you're a practitioner. If you're sitting, it's not just conceptual. It's mingling with an aspect of your body and mind and your practice. It isn't about ideas, which in a way means to have courage, to be courageous. You know, to be a practitioner is kind of a bold thing, you know, because we all have self-doubts and insecurities and, you know, and then to encounter this teachings which says, I can free myself. That's kind of audacious. Not that it's the teachings say that, but I think, okay, I'm going to do that. That's audacious. It's good. That's a good form of audacity. Because really, it's just confidence in a truth. It's not to say, yes, I am going to do that. It's not because I'm something special and great. I'm just like anybody else. But because I can. And so to really appreciate that patience is a practice. And it becomes very important in the moments when you're not being patient. Your impatience is a call. It's calling you in. And just notice all the forms of impatience, irritation, annoyance, anger, conflict. An old master said, countless are the hostile causes of our injuries. You cannot shift them all, maybe a few. Any yet by taming your mind alone, all those harms are likewise tamed. Any, anything that you learn how to calm or um, let go of or realize is not what you thought it was. And in that way, it becomes liberated. When you do that in one moment, in a sense, you have learned how to do that with every moment. But we have to keep Experiencing that, experiencing that. He says, therefore, this is mind training practice. This is what we do. It's thanks to all of your injuries that patience you can, you can cultivate. From all such hurts, compassion, love, and other qualities are also born. So in this way, your enemies are like friends or allies, like teachers who are helping you. And they don't have to be doing that purposefully. Usually they're not, right? 
But I can decide that that's how I'm going to work with this, because I could work with it in other ways. I know where that goes. That's the fundamental revolution. And it's not denying, again, this is really important, it's not denying that there's a whole heap of stuff in our world that needs to change and that we need to be working on. It's not about being passive. Patience is not passive. It's dynamic. Chandrakirti said, common folk and bodhisattvas both who understand the goodness of patience and the danger of wrath and anger will strive to abandon it, to free it, to liberate our anger and cultivate patience, which has been praised by all of the noble ones, all of the Buddhas and ancestors. And I think this is particularly important in our time because we, I think we live in a culture that has no patience for patience. It's often seen as weakness, as being indecisive, as not taking control. It's a very dominator model. It's a very patriarchal model of how to be in the world. It doesn't, you don't need to fully understand the situation, just act and clean up the mess as you go. Well, that's the mess we've got. And to ask someone to be patient in the midst of a crisis is a terrible thing to ask. That's a great ask. But it's not waiting. It's engaging, awake. And what these teachers are basically talking about is the most important and, I think, difficult practice of all, which is to love our enemies. Love those who are causing harm to ourselves and others. And love here is to hold them in our hearts and understand that everybody acts out of their sense of what the world is. And in that way, it makes sense to them, even if it's twisted and upside down. That's the power of our mind. And it doesn't make it right, and it doesn't mean that it should keep happening. But when we become an enemy to our enemies, then we're in the same pot. When we meet anger with anger, destructive anger, then we're perpetuating the same thing. And so the Buddha said, if we want to stop suffering, to alleviate suffering, we have to stop creating it. And that's where it all comes down to you and me. And that's why we need these teachings and practices. That's why we need to come together so we can have a little bit of help with that. <laughs> so thank you for being here today, for coming. That's what makes all of this happen. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks so much for listening. For meditation supplies such as cushions, incense, liturgical instruments, Dharma books, and more, visit monasterystore.org. Support for your spiritual practice at home.